Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. The National Museum of African American Music, or NAMAM, is a monument to sound. Sound that generations of African Americans created as expressions of their existence. From the spirituals of the enslaved to the boasting rhymes of modern day MCs and rappers. African American music has helped to shape our culture. More than two decades ago, the idea took root to create a lasting monument to these contributions. And where better than Music City? This month marks two years since NAMAM first opened its doors to the public, right in the middle of Broadway. Later this hour, we'll talk about its beginnings and what visitors can expect in its third year. But first, private equity has been pushing deeper into Nashville's healthcare industry. For some local entrepreneurs, this has meant more opportunities to help get their business growing from businesses and institutions with deep pockets. But medical experts and patient advocates are increasingly concerned that the heightened pressure to turn quick profits is causing harm that we may not even see just yet. WPLN's Blake Farmer has been reporting on private equity in healthcare as a part of a larger project with our partners at Kaiser Health News. Blake, how's it going? And welcome back to This is Nashville. Happy to be here. Happy to have you with us. So simple question to start. Let's just set the table here. What is private equity? Well, you say it's a simple question. It's, uh, it, you know, really, it, it's not that simple. And I say that because uh, even as part of this reporting over the last few months, you've got investment companies who might tell you, oh, we're not actually private equity, even though that is how they are perce- perceived. Um, and, and certainly some private equity firms wear, wear the, the label proudly, even though it's certainly gotten a bad name um, over uh, many years and, and uh, sometimes for good reason. But when people talk broadly about private equity, they're usually referring to investment companies that pool monies from you know, it could be wealthy families, institutions, and foundations. You really don't know. That's what makes it private. Um, and they've been known for going in, buying existing companies, or at least majority stakes in companies, borrowing lots of money, mm. while also typically cutting expenses to make the business more profitable, then turning around, selling it in, you know, five years or so. Certainly doesn't always work that way, but but that's kind of the wrap. So these private equity firms have been more interested in healthcare lately? Well, yeah, you know, private equity is not new to healthcare by any means, especially here here in Nashville, one of the mm. first healthcare business stories I covered uh, as a journalist uh, in town um, was in 2006 when Bain Capital and KKR, uh, so some of the biggest private equity firms around, uh, bought out HCA, which was a public company at the time. It was this, you know, obviously it's this mega hospital chain that essentially started the healthcare business in Nashville. Yeah. Um, at the time, I think $33 billion was the largest buyout in history. HCA then, you know, became a public company again, and its stock is traded publicly now. But you're not seeing these, like, giant leveraged buyouts as much right now. That's the term of our leveraged buyout. Uh, but private equity is, is snapping up companies by the hundreds in deals that, you know, don't always make headlines. In 2021, private equity plowed about $200 billion across 1,400 deals in healthcare, according to PitchBook. Wow. And um, a colleague at KHN, Fred Schulte, laid this out in a piece a few months ago. Um, this is kind of cradle to grave. We're talking eye care clinics, dental management change, uh, chains, hospices, physician practices, which is a big business here in Nashville, even pet 
health care. Okay. And as these folks, um, you know, are highly motivated by profits and, and reach deeper into the business of caring for our health, you know, there's this mounting evidence that care has diminished in some areas and patients are also paying higher prices. And one piece of evidence there is that private equity firms have agreed to pay fines of more than $500 million to settle at least 34 lawsuits filed under the False Claims Act uh, in less than a decade. Hmm. So uh, often uh, these are folks who are overcharging Medicare. And, and that's just sort of one example of ways that, you know, th- there may be some issues at times. You have a story out today specifically on investments in addiction medicine. Tell us what's going on there. Okay, so this is a story reported with my um, KHN colleague, uh, Renuka Ryasam, and we looked at a company called BRC Recovery out of uh, Texas, just outside Austin. And in 2021, they received backing from two private equity companies, and, and then that sort of funded their expansions, and their first purchase was actually here in Nashville. The company bought the Nashville Recovery Center, and we don't know for how much. as uh, a private deal. It included the center along with a detox facility and some sober living communities. Um, These are kind of like halfway houses, very nice halfway houses for for folks getting out of drug treatment. And former staffers told us, you know, the new owners promised nothing would really change except maybe that they would make more money, in fact. But instead, things were cut. Staffers uh, say care really went downhill. Through open records requests, we found, you know, a a license violation with the state where a staffer was sleeping with a patient. We found Mm. 911 calls for a few non-fatal overdoses on site, including one where the director acknowledged, you know, there was not a nurse on site. And, you know, in some states, nurses are required to be on site. And perhaps most troubling to some folks uh, who talked to us was that the company was putting former residents uh, in the program to work um, as house managers, even drug counselors, even though they'd only uh, had a few months of sober time. And usually you want folks to have about two years under their belt before taking on that kind of responsibility. Now, you also reported that this was one of 127 deals in behavioral health that year, which was a record. Is there some reason private equity investors would suddenly become more interested in addiction medicine? Well, yes, actually. It has a lot to do with, you know, something we've talked about on this show, the overdose crisis. Mm. People are just desperate to find treatment for loved ones, and they will pay a lot for it since addiction, you know, has become so much more deadly, especially uh, with fentanyl being um, in the mix. Also, private insurance now pays better for treatment. So, you know, uh, these places are not just relying on folks who, who might be able to come up with the cash to pay for, for uh, their their uh, time. They uh, Often, insurance only covers a small part of the bill. But, you know, uh, we, we talk, did talk to people who had, you know, emptied their life savings, basically, to pay for treatment with BRC, because we're talking about $30,000 a month for their, their mm. place in Austin. Some of these deals have been big enough to make headlines. Um, you know, there are... Uh, lots of action here. In 2021, Summit Behavioral Healthcare based in Franklin, which provides substance abuse, was sold for uh, from one private equity group to another for more than a billion dollars. Mm. And, and the previous owners had reportedly already increased profits by 350% in just four years. Now, look, I understand that anytime a company is making that much money, you ask questions. 
But is there anything to be said for investors coming into these industries like addiction medicine and making them better? I mean, we've certainly heard horror stories from mom and pop rehab facilities over the years. Yeah, there, there are some patient advocates who, who make exactly this point, especially when they see many addiction treatment facilities that still are, you know, primarily abstinence based, uh, which is not what federal authorities recommend these days. So in terms of opioids, uh, the, these are places that might discourage the use of drugs you hear about, like Suboxone, that, that help uh, tame the cravings, but also actually can block an overdose from occurring. Mm. So some of these facilities associated with the deals that we've talked about here, um, some of those facilities are abstinence-based. Um, I, I talked to Michael Botticelli. He is uh, he was director of the Office of National Drug Control Policy during the uh, Obama administration. Here's what he said. I have significant concern in the, in the expansion of treatment that doesn't meet um, accepted standards of high quality care. And if they're expanding treatment just to make money um, at the expense of quality. Um, I, I firmly believe that offering high quality care is actually a better business model than opening subpar care. But uh, you may not hear it there, but Botticelli is a believer that private equity investors could actually help in standardizing some of this care. He is on the clinical advisory board of a company backed by, you guessed it, private equity investors. Mm. Okay, before you go, talk to us about a story you have coming later this week on private equity firms and emergency rooms. Well, now, this is not breaking news that emergency departments around the country are often run by companies owned by private equity firms. Uh, which the big ones also happen to be based here in Tennessee. This is uh, names you might have heard, Team Health and Envision. Mm -hmm. um, but through some confidential documents and interviews over the course of uh, actually the last couple of years, uh, we take a look at the a fast-growing player in the ER business, also backed by private equity and, and based where? In Nashville. And one of the ways they cut expenses was by leaning more heavily on nurse practitioners and physician assistants. They have you know roughly half the training of a doctor but they also make uh, half as much on average. So clearly you could make more money this way. Trouble is, studies find that patients might end up paying more when they see uh, folks uh, referred to as mid-level providers in the ER because uh, those folks are more likely to order more x-rays, CT scans, and diagnostic tests, which isn't necessarily bad for, for business, but it certainly does drive up the cost to patients. And increasingly, emergency doctors are feeling a little sidelined in their own specialty. Mm, we'll wait to hear more. Blake Farmer is WPLN senior healthcare reporter. Blake, as always, thank you for your reporting. You're welcome. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll check out what's new at the National Museum of African American Music as it celebrates its second anniversary this month. Have you been to NAMAM? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. When I moved to town a few years ago, I was told by a friend that I had to go visit Nayman. Nay who? I said, Nayman, the National Museum of African American Music, my friend replied. Now, y'all know I'm a big music fan, so I was excited to check it out, and I'm glad I did. 
The museum is amazing. I spent over three hours gazing at historical artifacts and learning about the history of some of my favorite musicians, reading about the dusty origins of the blues while standing in a state-of-the-art interactive beat building. I felt like I was in a time warp in the best way. After taking a ton of pictures, I called, texted, and emailed friends and told them whenever they come to visit Nashville, we have to visit Naaman. This month marks two years since the museum opened its doors. So how have the people, how have the first couple years been, and what can visitors expect from the museum this year? My next guests are here to put us in the know. Candace Jones is the Director of Marketing and Communications at NAMAM, and Timon Bacon is a Manager of A&R Administration at Sony Music Entertainment. He's also a co-host of We Sound Crazy podcast, which is sponsored by the museum. Candace, Timon, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Really great. I'm excited about this. So let me start by saying happy second anniversary to you both. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful news. So, Candace, it's been two years since the museum opened its doors. How are things down at NAMAM? Things at NAMAM are phenomenal. Um, we are growing exponentially in terms of really inviting the local Nashville community in, really inviting the local artist community in, and just seeing the impact of all the exhibits and the programming in the events on the community has been amazing. So you're fairly new to the museum, right? Yes. What made you want to work there? <sighs> Honestly, I love music. I have always loved music. It's a passion of mine. And when I came down and I saw the museum, I was absolutely blown away. And I think I can speak for myself and the entire team at NAMAM. We're absolutely committed to preserving and celebrating black music. It's something we're all extremely passionate about. And it's something that really moved me to make the jump and take on this new role and move to Nashville. You said you were blown away when you came down to visit. Had you ever had a, an experience in a museum like that before? Listen, I've been to a lot of museums mm -hmm. and I had never had such an immersive experience. I was completely blown away, and I told everybody mm -hmm. <laughs> about how amazing it was. Okay, so, Timon, let's talk about We Sound Crazy. It's okay. the podcast that's associated with the museum. Can you explain the role of the podcast and how it fits into the museum's mission? Well, I like to think of the podcast definitely as an extension of the museum in the sense that we really try to blow the horn in terms of um, educating First of all, having a good time, and, and the four of us, myself, Claude Kelly, Chuck Harmony, and Phil Thornton, um, we're four guys who all work in the music industry in our respective journeys, but the the love and the the the, the appreciation of music and, and African-American culture is what brings us together. And so we really um, are sticklers for, um, as Candace said, preserving the history and educating um those out there that may not know certain things about black culture and black music, we really try to be an extension of the museum by doing that on the podcast. Now, y'all get some serious names on yeah. your podcast yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And, you know, back in October, you got to sit down with the legendary rapper MC Light and yeah. hear a bit of her origin story. <sighs> Let's take a listen to that. Do you remember that moment where the light bulb went off, where you saw whomever you were influenced by, and you said, you know what, I want to do that. That's oh, yeah. I, I mean, I always remember that exact moment, and it was in Hamill's projects in Far Rockaway, Queens, when I heard Salt and Pepper. Wow. And their song, Showstopper, mm -hmm. was playing on a big boombox. 
the people just stand. They pay to come in and they don't even dance. They're so, they're so uncouth. They think they're cute. And as soon as I heard it, I was like, I've got to do this somehow. I think prior to that, I thought that I would rap. But once I heard them, it really made me believe I could. Now, the amazing thing is, a few years after that moment she had in Queens, I was in New York City as a young one, and her first album, Light as a Rock, mm -hmm. the cassette tape, yeah. came out. And people <laughs> wow. in the park were playing yeah. it on a yeah, boombox. Yeah. So I had that similar experience. You know, this this podcast is like a backstage pass to music yes. and culture, and it yes. shares the history of influential musicians. It also gives them their flowers, yes. so to speak. Yeah. What does it mean to you to bring these untold stories to the public? Well, I just think that, um, you know, you have so much out in the marketplace um, and it's important for us to constantly, you know, wave that flag for those that, you know, have paved the way for us to do, be able to do what we're doing to the, to today. Mm -hmm. um, and so we have a segment on our show called the Estero Black Excellence Award. And it was birthed, um, initially birthed out of me studying Esther Rowland, realizing that she had a gospel album that was released in 1975 on Savoy Records called mm -hmm. Garden of My Mind. Mm -hmm. um, and Phil and I were talking about it. And when the, um, the podcast kind of came into fruition a few years back, we were like, how can we, how can we educate those that will listen to this podcast on, you know, what might not have been a part of the, the story back in the day. And so um, it's just our way of, of celebrating those that might not get the accolades on the major platforms. And so I take pride in the fact that we're able to, to do that and be an extension of the museum in and, that way. And inform people about the history. You look like the, a genre like hip hop, so to speak, yeah. right now, you know, uh, not too long ago, famous DJ, DJ Academics came out and had some what people would call dis disparaging comments about the forefathers. And you mentioned, you know, giving tribute to the people who paved the way for people to be there. So you, you're really adding that education element, yes. educating the generations about what the eras were like in their time. Yes, that's very important um, to all four of us. Um, it's, you know, you have to, everyone has a platform now and they can say whatever, but I think it's important for us to really come with facts. And so we definitely make sure that we do our research and that we come with facts so that people know what it really is. Um, and a lot of the stories, a lot, we didn't always get these opportunities back in the in the early days of, of music. So to be able to have uh, this opportunity now to kind of right some of the wrongs and, and, and make the stories right, um, I, I, I just really take pride in that. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Now, the museum has also been hosting community events over the years. Candice. What are some of the more notable events people can look forward to this year? Oh, my gosh. We have so much coming up. Um, as you know, Black History Month is mm -hmm. right around the corner. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually are doing some partnerships. One of those is with Vanderbilt. So they'll be hosting an evening of hip hop on February 2nd. Um, so we hope to see people at that. Um, we're hosting a screening that we're doing for the 1619 Project on February 15th. So that's going to be absolutely amazing. And then we also have the choir room that's going to be coming to the museum hmm. to really kind of fill up the lobby with, you know, amazing, beautiful gospel music. Um, and they're going to be singing in our lobby on February 6th. Okay. So that's just a few of the things you should look out for. What about Juneteenth? I can imagine something huge <sighs> happening for that. Yes. So, you know, that's our busy time. Mm -hmm. So Black Black Music Month is huge for us. We always like to blow it out and do it big. And this year will be no exception. Um, so, you know, we'll be having our community day at the museum. Um, 
And then we'll also be having like our block party, celebrating with our Legends event, so many things that will be going on. Um, and of course, we're, we're tying themes to the uh, year long anniversary of hip hop, which, you know, we all know that hip hop has turned 50 this year. Mm-hmm. And so we're really trying to weave that into the things that we're doing um, to make sure that we are celebrating hip hop properly. What goes into the planning and prep for these events? Oh, my gosh, so much. Um, well, we have a lot of internal meetings where we brainstorm. We try to make sure that we are doing things that the community are really, you know, going to enjoy and that they're going to want to attend. Um, We always take a look at, you know, what partners we can pull in that makes sense for the museum and that makes sense for the community so that we can amplify it and really make these events the best that they can possibly be. So a lot of planning on our end in terms of brainstorming, um, making sure that we have the right location. We want to make sure that people um, are coming to enjoy the event, but also still um, are cognizant that the museum is open Mm -hmm. and they can come and enjoy all of our wonderful exhibits. Mm -hmm. So that's 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 the major part of what goes into the planning. You talk about an event celebrating the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I understand the first event was last week, right? Yes. Yes, it was. What was it like? Oh, my gosh. So the energy was incredible. Um, It was our first opening reception. We'll actually have three more throughout the year. Um, This exhibit specifically is called This Is Hip Hop. It's a year long um, celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip hop. And the exhibit um, is focusing on those who have documented hip hop throughout the years. So for the first um, event, we had Raymond Boyd, who is a renowned uh, hip hop photographer Mm -hmm. from Chicago. And he came to the event. We did uh, a chat with him that everyone was able to attend that Kenny Smoove hosted. Um, we had DJ spinning, um, hot chicken, <laughs> um, wine, beer. Um, it was absolutely amazing. And just seeing everybody really take in the art and all of the things that have happened throughout hip hop. It was amazing. Timone, were you there? No, I wasn't able to attend, but I heard a lot of great things about it. Yes. And so I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about just what the museum has planned around the 50th anniversary of hip hop. I know as far as the the podcast is concerned, we are looking to kind of extend what we've been able to do with what we did with the RAA last year in the museum and just talking to the different hip hop artists. And um, we have a lot planned this year as well. Um, Tomorrow, actually, um, we are doing a live live podcast taping with R&B singer Jacquees at the museum. So yes. if mm-hmm. you're available uh, tomorrow at 6.30 p.m., come out to the museum. Um, you can go to We Sound Crazy on Instagram or the Name Man page on Instagram and click on the link in the bio to RSVP. I'm not sure if it's at capacity, but you can go in and try to sign up. But um, yeah, that's something that I'm excited about. And then we're also, um, we just recently taped an episode with uh, music superstar Jimmy Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had an opportunity to talk with uh, Fawn Weaver of Uncle Nearest Distillery out in Shelbyville. So that that is in the running as one of my favorite episodes. So I can't wait for that one to come out where everyone can hear that one. I think that one will kick off our Black History Month series this year. So. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour about Nashville's own National Museum of African American Music as it celebrates its second anniversary this month. My next guest is one of the people responsible for the setup of the museum. Dr. Dina Bennett is the former head curator of the museum, and she was a part of the ethnomusicologist team that curated the exhibits. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate this. So, you know, what can people expect when they visit NAMAM? Well, um, I think a lot of people come to NAMAM and they know they're going to hear music and read about music and musicians, but I don't think that they expect the history that accompanies the exhibitions. And we have grounded that in what we call an ethnomusicological point of view. And ethnomusicology is culture and history, and we study um, the function and role of music in communities. So in this instance, the function and role of music in African-American life. But when they come, they get all of this history because we look at music as lived experience of the people. And so I think that that's eye-opening for visitors. And then we have some really cool interactives that we created in each gallery. And with the technology of receiving an RFID bracelet upon admission, you're able to create different kinds of music and patterns and sounds. And then you're able to uh, use your RFID bracelet to record those and, and take that with you. So I don't think they're expecting that great takeaway. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. And I totally was completely enamored and in love with the place by the time I left. What would you say are some of the main attractions of the museum? Yeah. So I think one of the things that really stands out is in the religious music gallery, we have an interactive called Singing with the Choir. And we were able to collaborate with Dr. Bobby Jones and his super choir, the Nashville Super Choir, to create this interactive where people can go in a booth um, and they stand up against a green screen and then Dr. Jones comes on the opposite screen and uh, he and the super choir teach you, oh, happy day. And at the end, you are superimposed into the choir. Mm. And then you can take that away on your RFID bracelet. Now, we did not design that to promote religion, but we designed it so that the visitor could come in and that they could understand the communal effect of gospel music. Mm. Mm. Now, so that's that's a standout. You know, the, these kiosks, they really take you down this rabbit hole of music. You can find your favorite artist and go down the family tree of their musical influences. You know, doc, Dr. Bennett, why was it important for you all and the rest of the development team to really dedicate and create this learning experience, this interactive learning experience for visitors? Yeah, so what you're describing is uh, the interactives that we put in every gallery, which is called Roots and Streams. And as you know, um, water is extremely important to the African-American experience. So we have a lot of symbolism um, with water throughout the museum. So Roots and Streams is a takeaway from water because Roots and Streams interconnect and weave and transform. And that's how our our music genres work. They're all interconnected and we wanted to show that. So in the Roots and Streams Interactive, if you 
if you touch you know Mahalia Jackson, you'll understand that she's connected to Bessie Smith, mm-hmm. who's a blues singer, mm-hmm. because that was one of her idols. You're able to read a bio of Mahalia. You're able to listen to songs by Mahalia. And then you're also able to hear songs and um, read about Bessie Smith. So we wanted to uh, make sure that the visitor understood the interconnectedness of these genres and how they work in in um, everyday life. Now, in addition to the exhibits and interactive displays, the museum also contains a lot of great historical artifacts. One of those is a keyboard decked out in Mardi Gras beads <laughs> that belonged to the musician Ironing Board Sam. Here he is in 1965 on the Nashville TV show Night Train. Yeah. understand he got his name from strapping a legless iron keyboard to onto an ironing board to use as a stand. You talk talk about making it work however you can. Now, Candace, what is one of your favorite artifacts at NAMM? Oh, that is hard. Um, If I had to pick one, I would say uh, Whitney Houston's uh, performance outfit because I'm a huge nippy fan. So <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's right. I feel you, Timon. I think she stole mine. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Whitney Houston. I'm a huge Whitney Houston fan. Um, so I love all of the the, the different um, points where she's mentioned in the museum. But I also love um, the part where you get to where they talk about the Fisk Jubilee singers. I've heard about Fisk Jubilee singers all my life. Um, actually wanted to go to Fisk be, um, because of the Fisk Jubilee Singers and, you know, wasn't able to do that. But to learn about the history of the Fisk Jubilee Singers and how much of the impact they've made on the city of Nashville and, and the world at large and just to see the success that they're having in recent years. I mean, it's just it's amazing to kind of connect those dots when you go to the museum. You know, Candace, what challenges are, are the museum facing right now? I think in terms of challenges, we are trying to work diligently um, to make sure that the community knows that we're home for them. Um, So that's definitely a challenge, but it's something that we're all rising to the occasion on. Um, And just making sure that we're creating the right programming that's going to add value and impact to the community as well. Now, Timon, you work as an A&R. You're in the music industry. So you know about what's hot in music. Mm -hmm. How does visiting the museum, working with the museum and learning more of these histories, how does that impact and inform what you do in looking for new artists? You know, um, being an African, uh, being African-American, I think it, it, it helps me to because we're not we're not all through these buildings. And so being 
at work and, and kind of being a champion for culture, it, it definitely helps to kind of helps me to kind of educate others on why it's important to um, be in tune with what's happening with black culture and and helping others to understand like, hey, we have to respect it. We have to preserve it. We have to do it in such a way that in 20 years from now, we'll be able to look back on it and say we're proud of it. Mm. So. Candice, what's your message for people who may not have taken time to visit the museum yet? I would say, um, please come on down. <laughs> we have so much to offer. Um, our exhibits, um, all of the amazing events that are happening at the museum. Um, I would say just find the time, even if you can only come for a few hours. Um, I want to make sure that people um, in the community understands that NAMAM is a home for black music, for black culture, for black people, for all people in Nashville. And we really want to welcome everybody in. Candace Jones is the Director of Marketing and Communications of NAMAM, and Timon Bacon is an A&R for Sony Music Entertainment and co-host of the We Sound Crazy podcast. Candace and Timon, thank you so much thank for being us today. Dr. Dina Bennett will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn about how the National Museum of African American Art came, African American Music and Art, yeah, came to be. What does Nayman mean to you? What's your favorite attraction? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. In honor of its two-year anniversary this month, we are learning more about the National Museum of African American Music, or NAMAM. It took over two decades for the museum to get from an idea to a reality, and many hands contributed to the work of making that happen. What was the inspiration for the space? Who were the people who guided its creation? For those answers, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Dr. Lucius Outlaw acted as the chair of the Storyline Committee for NAMAM. Dr. Outlaw, thank you for being here and welcome to This Is Nashville. Thank you so very much for having me. Really? And for doing this focus on the museum. Really oh, appreciate of it. Of course. It's great to have you here with us. So, you know, tell me, how did you first become involved with the, with the de development of NAMAM? I was recruited to this project by one of its key initiators. Those two key initiators particularly were Francis Guest and T.B. Boyd III, both no longer with us. But uh, these were two phenomenal men with long histories in Nashville. Um, T.B. Boyd, T.B. Boyd Publishing, which is now being headed by his daughter, LaDonna Boyd, um, they had developed this idea and were working with the Convention and Visitors Bureau to figure out how do we get more people coming to Nashville, particularly folks of African descent, to come to Nashville, and what is it that we would provide them? What can attract them? We need something that would attract them to Nashville. And they came up with the idea of doing a museum. Francis uh, came to Vanderbilt to make a pitch for some assistance. I was an associate provost. The provost said, hey, why don't you go to this meeting with Francis? Mm -hmm. I did. And when I was there, I got intrigued by this idea that he was talking about. So I started asking a bunch of questions. They started talking about some technical stuff. Well, I'm kind of a geek about certain technical stuff. So I started asking questions about it. And he was like, you seem to know something about this. We need you on this project. I'm like, oh, 
okay, what would you have me do? He says, hmm. we want you to chair the storyline committee. Okay, hmm. I don't know anything about a storyline. I've never worked with a museum in my life, but okay. I thought figuring it out. But I had been recruited to Vanderbilt to chair the African-American Studies Department. I have a PhD in philosophy. I've been knowing that for years. I came to Vanderbilt in 2000. So I have spent most of my career, starting literally while I was in graduate school, dealing with the question, how do you produce viable knowledge about black people? Mm. So I was caught up in the contemporary black studies movement from the late 60s on. I'm in a discipline philosophy that is one of the most recalcitrant and racially restrictive racist disciplines in the academy. Mm -hmm. So most of my career has been devoted to developing knowledge in an area where folks said there was nothing to control. There's no, there are no black philosophers. And we're like, yeah, yes, there are. There's philosophical thought among black folks. You just got to know where to look. So when I get this task, it's like, okay, I don't know music. I do know something about knowledge production. So I've got to find the people who know how to produce knowledge about music in black folk. And I start doing some research, buying some books, reading some books, came upon a particular piece of writing by Portia Mosby and looked at her overview and said, okay, this is the guiding overview we need. Talked to my good friend, John Fleming. He knew her. She said, and I called her, persuaded her to join the project. And my job was to get the scholars, but really I wasn't responsible for getting the scholars. It was to get the lead scholar who knew, mm. had this overview about the history of music, and as Dina was saying, situated historically and culturally. And then that person could then identify what other scholars was needed. My job was to then help get them on board and then to protect them. Okay. I want to ask you about that a little bit later. So. You, you found Dr. renowned ethnomusicologist, Dr. Portia Mosby. You got her involved, and they were developing people for this storyline committee. Explain to us real quick, for those who don't know, what a storyline committee actually does. Okay. <laughs> Let the truth be told, there really wasn't a committee. Okay. It was really just me. <laughs> 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 but it was to get the scholars. So here's another way of putting it. If you think about that museum, there's all kinds of stuff on exhibition and built into these tables with data and et cetera, et cetera. How does that all get put together? Mm. There's got to be a rationale. Furthermore, think this is a music covering hundreds of years of history. So, in effect, you need a historian's orientation to telling a story. Mm-hmm. But that's not something you can just sit up and spin out. You've got to develop it. It's got to get laid down because this has also got to drive architecture and exhibition design. So the, the unseen part of that museum, in one sense, is the storyline. It's manifested in all the exhibitions, in the way the museum is actually constructed. So what do I mean? For so, for example, there is no one way to go through the museum, mm-hmm. right? We could say, start at A, go to B, go to C, go to D. Well, what does it have to do with your interests? Mm. If A has a set of interests that don't really speak to you, we want to make you go A, B, and C to get to your interest, which is primarily D? No. You can start at D, but what you may discover once you get in a D is, 
wait a minute, there's some A in here, there's some B in mm-hmm. I need to go, you can go to the museum any way you wish. So that's what I meant by saying the storyline drives all of this. That storyline is hundreds of pages long. Mm-hmm. You I, never see it. I can speak to that because the first place I took a beeline, obviously, to the hip-hop section, but I ended up in the gospel section for hours. Now, ethnomusicologist Dr. Dina Bennett is still with us. Now, Dr. Bennett, I understand that Dr. Mosby was once your professor, right? <laughs> That's correct. Yes, she was my <laughs> professor at Indiana University. So it was really awesome to come onto the project and work with her as the lead scholar. Um, and so sometimes I found myself um the teacher and she, the student. So mm-hmm. it was really phenomenal. And um, I'm grateful for her tutelage because she really is um, the renowned um, scholar for African-American popular music. Now, now, how did you, Dr. Mosby, and the other scholars come together to create this historical story of the museum that Dr. Outlaw was just painting for us? Yeah, so as Dr. Outlaw said, he uh, recruited Dr. Maltzby to come on board, and then she identified other scholars, um, music scholars, to um, come together and to discuss an actual storyline, or another word that we use is script. Mm -hmm. What do we want the museum to say? How do we want to say it? Um, how do we want to lay it out? What does that look like? Do we need an overarching theme? So all of these scholars came together and eventually a theme was discussed and it is uh, taken from Langston Hughes' poem, The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Mm -hmm. So earlier I mentioned that whole theme and symbolism of water throughout the exhibit. So we talked about the Roots and Streams interactives, and then there's also the Rivers of Rhythm Mm -hmm. exhibit or corridor, which Dr. Outlaw referenced. So for instance, when you're coming out of the Roots Theater, you enter into the Rivers of Rhythm corridor. So from there, you can go anywhere. And evidently you went to hip hop and then ended up in (laughs) religious music. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah. So uh, Rivers of Rhythm. And then when you're in the lobby, I don't know if you notice that there's like this blue streak in the floor of the lobby. Mm -hmm. And that is like um, a stream of water that leads you into Rivers of Rhythm. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the ceiling, the ceiling treatment that was used is to mimic ripples of water. Now, you mentioned the Roots Theater, and when you go in, there is a film that everyone watches before you really enter the rest of the museum. Mm-hmm. Dr. Outlaw, can you mm-hmm. talk about the significance of that film? Yeah, part of what that the work of that film, and, and, and Don, you know, Dina can tell you about the woman who did that work for us, who's a phenomenal scholar and creative artist in her own right. But what you've got, what you get in that is a really capsule introduction to the whole venture of creative music making by of people who prior to enslavement were making music, Mm -hmm. but who continued to be creative all through this holocaust of enslavement 
dehumanization, et cetera, but who refused to succumb to what I call the process of niggerization. They refused. And the music played a major role in that refusal and to keep being creative, to keep singing, to keep lifting voices, to keep anticipating a future that many of them realized they would never see themselves, but they would make a way for those who came after them to see it. That film then is to give you an experience and to begin to get you emotionally attuned mm. to what you're going to experience in that museum, to set you up. For yeah, I, I understand that one of the original plans was to house the museum in North Nashville on, uh, 8th, and, on 8th and Jefferson. That's right. Why did it get moved downtown to 5th and Broadway? Very interesting question. One of the interesting, so when T.B. Board and Francis Guest first came up with this idea, working with the, you know, with Butch Spirit and then the Convention and Visitors Bureau trying to figure out, you know, how can we have something on track to attract more people than actually particular people of color? They brought in a, set, a consultant, Lloyd Associates, that consults about museums all over the world. And Lloyd looked at all of the museums in the United States devoted to subject matter dealing with black folk. Came back and said, look, if you want to build a museum, don't aim it simply at a black audience because it literally will likely not survive. As mm -hmm. I say to people, if you think about it, the only institution that black folk primarily support completely financially on their own Church. are churches. Yeah. Are churches. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do a major institution like this, if you only aim it at black folk, you could almost ensure that it will not flourish. might survive, but it might not flourish. So there was a historic symbolic reason for having it at 8th and Rosa Parks, but then an option comes up, what if you could put this downtown in the center of the music madness about Nashville? Now, there were a bunch of black folk who were really upset with the idea. My position was, why would we concede downtown, music-making downtown, to white people only? You know, People say, well, you know, Nashville's music city. And my tagline is, yeah, but it ain't all country. Mm -hmm. So why concede? Why isolate us over here? How many people are going to leave downtown to come to 8th and Rosa Parks to see something about music making by black people? Not a lot. But if you're downtown, oh, I want to go see the country, you know, the mother church of country music. You're going to know, well, what's that across the street? Mm -hmm. Maybe I bet, well, let me at least look in the Door. Wait a minute, what is this? So we're down there where hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people are moving around concerned about music, and there we are. Mm -hmm. There we are. Now, you know, another person who was instrumental in developing the museum is former director-in-residence Dr. John Fleming. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Fleming wasn't able to join us today, but he spoke to our producer last week. Here he is talking about why the museum should appeal to everyone. From what I could see standing on the street outside of the museum, I saw many, many uh, white people walk up and down the street and look at the sign and keep going. I think that they see this as uh, a black museum. And I, I think they see this as black music. And I think if they would go into the museum, they would understand that even though uh, this is uh, an African-American experience, it is a American music. Dr. Bennett, how does that resonate with you? 
Yes, most definitely. Um, I'm I'm glad that it's in the location it's in. And I do think a lot of people walk by and some are still a little puzzled as to what NAMIM, National Museum of African-American Music, means and think that it doesn't have any impact on them. But when they go in and they read about the history, they'll understand that Black music is really the heartbeat of, of American music. Mm. Um, and the history is there to to prove that. What do you want people to prepare for when they enter the museum? I think that they need to be open-minded for the experience. And I ne- think they need to take in all the sights and all the sounds. Um, we did a lot of special things um, as curators, whether or not they realize it, you know, they might have to actually be on a tour with a tour guide for the tour guide to point things out. But for instance, in the hip hop gallery, we commissioned and and the name eludes me right now. I'm sorry, but uh, we commissioned a local artist to do some artwork, um, some graffiti artwork. Mm-hmm. that we have in the in the gallery. So that's what I mean by the sights and sounds, you know, just to take it all in and to take their time. I know that a lot of visitors are from out of town and it's a one time, let's go, let's go into name them. But if you're able to return to actually spend time with the interactives and the history, I think that would be a great thing as well. Now, Dr. Outlaw, final question for you, sir. What can we, how can we expect the museum to evolve over time? We have to expect it to evolve. One of the things I said all along the way was that the museum is an institution, it's not a monument to -hmm. black music. And I say, well, what's the difference? Think about it. If you go to D.C. to see the Martin Luther King Jr. monument, you go and you see it. Mm -hmm. If you go back six months later, will that monument have changed? Mm. No. Mm-mm. It made weather, but it's not going to change. If you think about creative music making, consumption of the music made by folks, black, of African descent, et cetera, what is that going to look like 10 years from now? We don't know. It's going to be changed. So the museum has got to keep up with that dynamic evolution of the music. We're not a monument to black music. We are really a knowledge-producing, knowledge-distributing, exhibiting. And so constantly, we'll have to be on top of the evolution of the music-making by Black people in this country and around the world. Mm. Dr. Lucius Outlaw is the former chair of the Storyline Committee for the National Museum of African American Music. He was joined by Dr. Dina Bennett, former head curator. I want to thank you both for being here today. Really appreciate talking with you. Thank you for having me. Thank you again for the focus on the name M. Dina. Be well, my sister. We want to talk, thank everybody who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, we'll explore the historic underfunding of Tennessee State University and what comes next for the state's only public HBC This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back anywhere you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are Laurent and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Dr. John Fleming and Lauren Shows. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil A. Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.